Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome back to episode 347 of Sexology Podcast. As part of our sexual novelty series, we're diving into a topic many whisper about, but few discuss openly, sex in public. Yes, we're talking about the allure, the thrill, and the boundaries. And to help us navigate this tantalizing realm, we got an expert who knows a thing or two about breaking conventions. Our guest today is Dr. Lori Beth Bespe. She's a clinical psychologist, accredited advanced GSRD therapist, sex and intimacy coach, author, speaker, and podcast host based in Edinburgh. She has a very impressive CV and bio. Make sure you're reading her CV. And if you want to learn more about her, head to drlauribetbestbay.com. The link is in the show notes. And speaking of diving deep, a shout out to our fabulous sponsor, Sexual Health Alliance. One of the common questions I get from many of you guys that are therapists, people who are sex positive, is how I can get training to become a sex therapist, sex educator, coach, couple therapist. What you want to do is you want to head over to sexualhealthalliance.com or go to our show notes and check out their program. They have a fabulous program. They have many of our wonderful previous guests, which are world-renowned teaching for their program. The content are very well produced, very curated, and they all even offer supervision. So if you are curious on how to become a sex therapist, make sure you are checking out their website, which is sexualhealthalliance.com. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Beth Bisme. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Bisbee to our show. Dr. Bisbee, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I am very excited about this conversation. The entire summer, we've been talking about different ways that can people incorporate novelty in the relationship. And I read the wonderful article that you contributed on about having sex in public. So I thought it would be wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you. Well, tell us how prevalent is the desire to have sex in public? Is it something that most people are interested? Does our culture play a role in it? There are a lot of people who are exhibitionists and the desire to have sex in front of other people is exhibitionism. It doesn't necessarily mean in a large open public space, but just where there are other people present watching. And it's actually probably one of the larger fetishes that people have. And I do think our culture does play a little bit of a role in it because we make the idea of sex so taboo. So, you know, so that becomes then it's something so hidden frequently in people's lives that that can really drive a desire to have it not be hidden. Absolutely. I think definitely there is a cultural element to it. I have another show in Farsi and I hear like many of my clients from more of a conservative community. That's something that they're really drawn to. Is it necessarily kind of like a quote unquote illness? Because sometimes people, when they think about exhibitionism, they think about people who are kind of like exposing themselves in the public. But what we're talking about mostly is about kind of like a giving a twist to what people are doing already. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so it's not an illness. 
it's a normal variation on sexuality. When you've got somebody who has it as an illness, you're talking about somebody who's doing it non-consensually. So an exhibitionist like who is exposing himself on the subway or, you know, to the public in the park. Yeah, that's a problem. But the way that most people do it, it is really just an exaggeration. And there's a thrill involved with the idea of people watching for some people, but also with the idea of possibly getting caught for other people. So it's it's adding to the thrill level. And it really is common enough that, you know, it really is still on the normal spectrum of things that people like to do. So I guess what I'm hearing is that the difference is like the consent, right? Whoever is around, if they're consenting, then that's that's something that can be part of the exciting new experiences that people are adding to their sex life. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, people who want to have sex in public don't think about the fact that those people walking by or who might catch them don't consent. And that actually is quite problematic. But in the UK, we have this thing called dogging. And I don't know whether you have it over where you are, but dogging is when people gather in a place and usually have sex in cars and people gather to watch them. And so that's like one way that people do this where they know that the people who come by to watch are people who want to watch. So it's not, it's, it's all consensual. I love that. I didn't know about, is it a well-known thing, the dogging thing? Yeah. yeah. Oh, how fun. So it's like people who are there to watch, like they, they have like this voyeur, the voyeuristic part to them and the all parties are enjoying it. Yes. Well, can you tell us for the people who are interested, like maybe couples to explore that as part of their sexual routine, maybe they want to kind of spice things up. How can they integrate it into their sex life in a healthy manner? So I think if you're wanting to be in public, i.e. in front of other people, that the safe ways to do that are to consider things like sex parties, sex clubs, and swing clubs, and that that's the place to start. First, talk about it. Talk about the fantasy. Then talk about the detail. Make sure you're very clear about what you're okay with and what you're not okay with. You may not actually know what the turn-on is so until you try stuff, but research the places that you're going to go to try. And make them be sex-positive environments. Then you don't have to worry about consent from other people because you're going into an environment where people expect to see sex. And that can allow you to actually trial it and see how you feel about it and see if it's the thrill you thought it was going to be. I know for many of my clients, this kind of part of themselves, wanting to watch or wanting to be seen is something they discovered when they attended like swing parties or kind of sex clubs. For people that they don't have, for example, for swingers party, my understanding is you need an invitation for most of the places, unless it's a kind of a convention. So people who don't have the connections, like how would you recommend them to maybe find the sex clubs or swing clubs, swingers kind of community? What are some of the recommendations you have around that? So there are a lot of apps these days for people who are looking for some form of non-monogamy. And that's where you'd find a swing club. Even if you're not planning on having sex with anybody but your partner, that's where you'd find the swing club. And so those are good. Swing Hub is an app that was just released that's quite big and people are excited about, but there are lots of others. So that's one way of finding it. The other is to look up in your local paper, your local area listings online to see if there's a swing club in your local area and check it out. Read the reviews, check out the environment. Before you commit to doing anything there, go on a visit to see if you're comfortable. Really important. Some of those places are really seedy and some of them are really luxurious. 
So go check them out and go on a visit to do that. The other thing is you could join FetLife, which is kind of Facebook for kinky people. And the the only reason I think to join FetLife in reality is because often there are lots of local listings. So people will post local events. And so that's how you can find out about events. And you can then vet the events as well by talking to people who have been to them before. Fascinating. So there are different options, right? Like uh, looking online for kind of like swinger parties or like social media groups like FetLife that you can kind of join and see if like getting a kind of assessing the vibe. Is this your vibe or not? And going checking it out. I love that idea. Like it's not, if you're going like, for example, sex parties, it's not the commitment that you have to have sex, right? So Absolutely. you can go check it out. I always tell people, don't set lofty goals for yourself to start out with. Set a boundary and stick to the boundary, even if you feel comfortable and excited. Don't change the boundary in midstream. There will always be another time. And people get FOMO, fear of missing out. And then they do things and they push themselves too far. And it becomes a negative experience. And you just don't want that. So set a boundary. Say, okay, we're going to go to this club. And the first time, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to watch. And like you're there for an hour. Now you're like, oh, I want to do something. No, we agreed. We're just going to watch today. And if you liked it so much, you really wanted to do something, then go back really quickly. Work on it in that way. Give yourself time to acclimate to the environment, make sure the people are cool, make sure the vibe is the one that you want before you actually commit to doing anything. I love that. Such an important reminder. I think especially if you're going with a partner, right, that people make the commitment beforehand and while in that kind of like a scene, I, I get it. It's exciting. It's new. And maybe you want to kind of renegotiate. But what I hear that renegotiating in the middle of a sex party <laughs> might not be ideal. You maybe want to wait until the next time. Well, the reason that renegotiation in the middle of a sex party isn't great is because you're high, right? You know, you're high with excitement, with the chemicals that your body is releasing. So you don't make your best decisions then. And you don't think through what the consequences might be. And then if you then the next day feel, or even later in the evening, feel like you've gone too far, then you've got a situation to sort out. Whereas you can avoid that by slowing down and just going slowly into it and trying things. Sometimes things still won't go right, but it's better that you kind of, you stuck to what your agreement was and you made the boundaries and you took your time. It's much easier to manage than when you kind of renegotiate it on the fly and one person ends up feeling pressured because the other person's so excited and then it doesn't go well. And then you've got to deal with all the mess, the emotional mess that gets created with that. Absolutely. I agree with you. I think this is, if that's something new for people, like taking it slow, being intentional and deliberate can help people to be able to have more better experiences in future versus kind of like going in and kind of like following your instinct, which can work okay, but it's riskier in a way, especially again if you're in a relationship. So if people who are like, for example, in a relationship or they are like their partner is making an invite for them to do something that involves exposure in public, an element of exhibitionism, they might be thrilled and excited about it. But before saying yes, what are some of the things that you invite people to consider? So what, what's the risk level? Is somebody asking you to go to a swing club and, and, and do something there? Are they asking you to go to a private party? and do something there? Are they asking you to have sex in your own garden with the risk of your neighbor seeing you? Or are they asking you to consider having sex in, in like a public area where the risk is, is that the police are going to come and get 
right? Or somebody else is going to stumble upon you. So get the information. You can't really consent until you have all the information. Get the information. What are they actually asking you to do? If you can, identify what the thrill is for them and look at what the thrill is for you because you might, it might be different goals. It might be a different thrill. So try and do that. Be clear. What happens if you want to pull out? What happens if I don't like this? How are we going to deal with that? Or what? how are we going to deal with an upset afterwards? Also be clear that you're experimenting. So you're not agreeing to include this in your in your practice every week. That's those, those are the places I'd start. That is fantastic. Think First of all, I tell people that any kind of sexual interaction that you have, there is a level of risk. There is nothing like a risk-free encounter. But I like that you're thinking, like inviting people to think about what is the risk that I'm willing to take? So let's talk about a few of those options. What would be a risk of going to a public sex party or swinger party or any variation of that? Well, some of it depends on what you do for a living and your place in the community and whether or not you're okay for people to know about you. Because one of the risks of going to a public event is that people you know will see you. And for some people, that's a really big risk. For other people, it's not, right? Somebody will recognize you. Somebody will see you. And although most of these events, if not all of these events, don't allow photography, these days we have phones and they do their best to keep phones out, but people do photograph and video on the sly. So you have to be clear with yourself that if somebody videoed you and the actions that you're doing and it ended up on the internet, how would you feel? So that's the kind of thing I think when you're when you're going to something where you're absolutely in public, nobody's being vetted, you're just going to a club. What if somebody sees me that I know? And another is what if the atmosphere isn't a good atmosphere? I don't like the atmosphere. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. People aren't just allowing us to do our thing. They're getting up close to us. They're getting in our space. They're not just asking nicely to do something, but they're being pushy. That's another risk of going to like an open public event. I think those are really the two major ones. That makes sense. And I, I wonder that if the, if I get an invitation for a sex party that for the, from the person that I don't know versus a public, like maybe sex club, I would imagine I was thinking that maybe like the public one appears safer because usually they have like people that they can kind of like monitor the situation if things get risky. But I can imagine that there is a less of a, kind of like a control over how who's there and kind of like less of a screening process. What if our partner invite us to have sex, like maybe in public, like many people have sex in car or in outdoors or picnic. I only heard in the kind of movies, people getting arrested for it. What is it oftentimes, of course, we cannot give legal advice. What, what, how common it is for people to have challenges if they have sex in public? It depends on where you are in the world. Right. I mean, people absolutely can be arrested for that. And it's a sex crime. And a sex crime can often put you on a sex offender register if you're convicted. Oh, no. Right. I mean, people don't think about that. Right. But, you know, you say, oh, it's a victimless crime. Not necessarily. So depending on where you are, the police will look differently on it. Depending on where you had sex, the police will look differently on it. And depending on, I hate to say it, your culture, your race, your ethnicity, whether or not it was queer sex or heterosexual sex, all of that can impact what the police decide to do in any given situation. And 
And as I say, in many countries, that would give you a sex offense charge, which would put you on a sex offender register, which would mean that you would be barred from all sorts of employment. Well, that is a major consequence. Yeah, it's a major consequence for just wanting to have sex in the park. <laughs> that or, is true. When I see a lot of graveyard, people like to go have sex, sneaky sex in the graveyard, right? <laughs> that is true. So I think kind of going back to level of risk and absolutely right, different countries have different risks. I know that I grew up in Iran and if you have like a queer oh sex God. there, they can kill you. <laughs> so you have versus kind of I live in LA and if you have car, like sex in your car and remote places, maybe the consequences are less, but people can kind of gauge what would make sense for them. What is the psychological thrill of this for people? What do you hear from people why they're interested to explore that? It, I mean, most often it's because it's forbidden. That's the thing I hear most often. The forbidden part of it and taboo part of it. There's a lot of forbiddens there, though. There's the, you know, it's forbidden to be in public. It's forbidden to be seen by others. It's for, it, there's a, a, a sense sometimes for some people of forbidden desire, like many people desiring them, but they can't touch them. You know, there's, so there's all sorts of ways that the taboo and the forbidden comes into it that can make it exciting. And I think, you know, there's a difference between having sex in your car where what's more likely to happen, even in some intense jurisdictions, is you're going to be moved along, right? You're not going to be arrested. They're going to bang on the window, which is probably fogged so most people can't see anyway, and say, move it along, right? Then it is to have sex in the park, for example, or in the out of doors, where it's much more likely that other people will see you and the police take a much dimmer attitude at that. You also run the risk of somebody coming up and, and, and trying to assault you. <laughs> You're scaring me now. <laughs> I'm sorry, but no, 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 I'm just I'm just very clear about, I'm just very blunt about risks. And so, you know, if you're in an area that you don't know well, a group of people could come up and want to take part. You know, if you have one partner, right, they might not be able to manage that. So you need to research what you're doing and where you're doing it and what the worst case scenario and the best case scenario is. I don't want to rain on anybody's parade or yuck anybody's yum, as we say, but I want you to think through the risk and then you get to choose. I don't tell people what to do. I will lay out the risks and the potential benefits and they can choose what their risk level is because I want people to learn to do that for themselves. You go through it and you think it through before you act. And then if you choose to take a big, big, big risk anyway, that's your business. That's fine. No judgment, right? Some people really like to take a big, big risk and there's no judgment about that, but at least be intentional about doing that. You thought about it and you know what it is you're getting into. And having some kind of a contingency plan. Like I know some people, like many people have fantasies about having sex in an airplane, right? Kind of thinking about, well, if the hostess, like that a hostess, the flight attendant come and knock on the door, what's the story you're going to tell? Many of us have had sex in an airplane. Ooh, <laughs> do it now. I mean, the, oh God, so many years ago, so many years ago. Airplane bathrooms are small. Even when you're very young and limber, airplane bathrooms are small. That wasn't much fun. But we had we had some stuff with a blanket over the lap in a long flight. That is a fun one. I know like I, I made the joke with my husband about like because I think it's just so fun. And when you're kind of having sex in the bathroom, that's that's what most people do when they have that fantasy. My husband said, whenever you have enough money that we can fly first class, <laughs> we'll do that on the Esprit airline, <laughs> tiny bathroom. I'm not it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, so, you know, there's, I mean, you know, the Mile High Club is very, it, that's a popular one, but it's also very different today than it was when I was acting reckless, which was in the 80s. It's a very long time ago. 
And there are different penalties now and different attitudes now to stuff like that than there were in the past. And so you really, you know, and, and people think more about consent in, the, in, in, in a different way, meaning they think more about the fact that people sitting on the plane with you did not consent to have to watch or hear you have sex, you know, which, which we really in those days didn't think as much about. I, I agree with you. I think th- I'm I'm glad there's been more conversation about consent because I also kind of one of the things that people do that can be very fun is having sex in front of the window in your home or backyard. But going back to what you're saying that if people are passing by, are they consenting? What does that in- entail? So can you tell us more about the element of consent and exhibitionism? How can people can navigate that? So it's really a hard one because it's the consent of the people outside of your your play that you you're not you don't have. And and it can be really pretty bad. Like you don't you don't know what a person walking by has in their history. And if some for example, if somebody's got sexual trauma in their history and seeing a penis is traumatic and you're having sex that involves a penis and they see the penis, that could be really triggering for them. And all they were doing was walking down the road. They didn't ask for that. They didn't agree to that. They didn't agree to be part of your game. Children don't agree to be exposed to that. You know, parents can be really upset. So it's quite difficult because engaging where it's going to be thrilling enough without a huge risk of violating the consent of anybody who is lawfully going about their business is really important. So like having it in front of your open window when you're on the 15th floor or your, you know, your picture window when you're on the 15th floor and the only people who are likely to see you is somebody with a telescope is one thing, right? When you're on the ground floor and you're on a busy street and anybody who walks by is likely to see you, that's really not on. It's not fair because these people aren't getting a say as to what they see. It's another thing which I find really interesting because there's a, a modern day version of exhibitionism Includes sending people pictures of your bits and and videos of you having sex. That's an, an exhibitionist thing, and it also winds people up who aren't consenting. You know, unless the person you're sending your dick pic to, or your vulva pic to, or your movies to, and I say movies because I have been um in the last sort of five years on the recipient end of total strangers sending me movies. You know, I didn't ask for this, right? And unless you have the consent of the person you're sending stuff to, that can traumatize people. In my case, it didn't traumatize me. It just annoyed me, right? I don't want that. I didn't ask for that. I really have no desire to see your penis. Thanks very much. Or your vulva. Thanks very much. And I certainly don't have any desire to see you having sex. I don't know you. And so people need to think about consent there. Like if you're going to send something to somebody, you got to ask them if they're okay with getting it. Hundred percent. You know, it's like I have, I personally have mixed emotion about exhibitionism, right? I think kind of the kind of having sex in public and kind of like that kind of element of adventure can be very fun. But also growing up, I've been a recipient of many unsolicited kind of like indecent exposures, right? Like people right. exposing themselves in front of like middle school, high schoolers, or kind of even as an adult, like. I get a lot of dick pic. That's why I don't read like any open, any video or picture on my direct message, which is so unfair, right? You want to share it with someone that's excited about, but I know for some people who have those tendencies, that element also is part of their erotic template. 
Right. And that's not and that's not exhibitionism. That goes beyond exhibitionism. That's them wanting to shock you. That's them wanting to exert some control. That's them wanting to intrude upon you because the fact that you haven't consented is a big part of it for them. I get lots of phone calls from people as a therapist who deals with sex over many years. I mean, so much so that I actually did a podcast on my, I do a podcast called The A to Z of Sex. And I did a podcast called W is for Wanker with a colleague of mine because we get so much unsolicited stuff. And we were talking about the stuff that happens, but I would get, you know, there's calls every week from people who would want to talk about their fetish. And so I would be like, they would say, well, I need to know if you deal with, and the foot fetish is the most popular one for this, for some reason. I need to know if you deal with people who have foot fetishes. And, And I would say, well, yes, I don't, but I don't help people to get rid of fetishes. That's not what I do, but I do help people to learn how to accept themselves. So yes, it doesn't matter what the fetish is. I'll work with you on it as long as you're not harming, you're permanently harming yourself or permanently harming somebody else or violating somebody's consent. I'll work with you on it. And then they'll say, well, I really need to talk about this with you. So I know you're really going to get it. And no, you don't. You can sign up for an appointment now, right? I'm not going to listen. You can sign up for an appointment and you can come for the appointment, but I'm not listening to you. Give me a detailed description of your fantasies while you jerk off, because I know that that's what's going on. And I get regularly like weekly, at least one of those, if not more. Right now, I've had one person who's phoned my business number 27 times in the last 24 hours. The first time he phoned, I picked it up. I didn't, you know, I answered the phone. I said, hello. He hung up immediately. And then he texted me to ask me if I deal with the fetish of people who who have like smelly feet. And the way it was worded, I knew that this wasn't somebody who wanted therapy. So I didn't respond because I like, I just don't, I don't engage. And he's since called me 27 times. Oh God. Waiting for me to pick up. And I'm not going to pick up because I'm not going to have that conversation with you. And he's desperately trying to shock someone, right? First of all, I don't get shocked by stuff like that. I mean, I've been doing this too long, but it's still intrusive. Why should I listen to that? Why should I feed your fantasy? I get paid for what I do and I'm not a sex worker. Nothing wrong with being a sex worker. That belongs with a sex worker. Go to a sex worker for that. Don't come to me. But the reason they don't go to a sex worker is because a sex worker won't be shocked. So that element that you were talking about of of, of the non-consent, which is important to them, isn't there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the thrill of being a sex therapist. <laughs> I had the same similar experiences. And again, I think for us, because we are like tend to be more sex positive, we have a lot of knowledge in the world of sexual health. Like we might not get shocked, but it is very, very unpleasant, irritating and diminishing in a way. Like people like when they do those things. And what I discovered, which is very annoying that the law legal system is not taking it as seriously. Like a few years ago, I had someone that nonstop, they were sending me dick pics on my phone, business phone lock number and someone I never worked with. And they started calling. And one day I was in the office. He said that I know you're in the office. I'm coming over. That was a voicemail. And I called legal system. And like police officers came. And pretty much the message I got was when he's here in your waiting room, call us. So it was like that. Yeah, like when, when something's happened, call us. Right. I, I was stalked for a while. And I know I reported it to the police and I reported all the stuff. And it was like, 
we can't do anything until the person does something. I'm like, so I'm supposed to wait until they harm me, am I? Mm -hmm. You know, and it was, you know, what is it that I'm supposed to do with this? I'm supposed to wait until until you harm me, wait until something happens. Sorry, no, that's not what I want to do. I need you to act now. And so what I ended up doing was a friend of mine who was in close protection handle it. Mm -hmm. And they they found the person and went and had some very stern words with the person. I believe they frightened the person and the person eventually went away. But the police weren't going to do anything about it. And when I talked with them and I was quite cross, they were like, we know that you might get hurt out of this. We just can't do anything until the person does something. Which is so unfortunate, right? Kind of like people kind of feeling that they have to like, and if the guy is who's sending me hundreds of dick pics out of my waiting room, it's already too late for them to intervene, right? So I get what you're talking about. And I want more of those friends. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have people in my life that 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 watch after me. In part because I'm I'm very public, so you know I've I've done two seasons of a television show now, and I'm out speaking all over the UK at the moment, and so I'm really public. And because I'm really public, people believe they know you, and they find it easier to target you in that circumstance. And so it you know it it's thinking about well how am I going to handle this is really important. But that kind of stuff, that that's not really exhibitionism because it's really about those things are not about the thrill of getting caught and the thrill of somebody else seeing them. Those are about you being shocked, upset, traumatized. Those are aggressive acts. And I think it's really important that we label them properly because part of the reason the police don't take them seriously is because they don't see them as aggressive acts. Absolutely. It's a huge difference. It's my partner sending me sexy pictures or kind of inviting me to do things or masturbating in front of me in, in, in somewhere in our house versus someone that's just doing those behaviors non-consensually to people that are very clear that they're not interested in being part of that. The other thing is I know at times people feel nervous about is that as sex therapists, we hear a lot of sex stories. What Dr. Bisbee is talking about is more about we get this feeling of when someone want to kind of like is not interested in hell, is just want us to kind of be part of that fantasy. I hear lots of sex stories, but I don't actually need every minute detail of your fantasy to help you. In fact, it's very rare that people tell me the minute details of their fantasies. First of all, they're embarrassed. They don't want to talk about them. Second of all, it doesn't add to me helping them to communicate with a partner or to feel good about themselves. So I don't ask the questions that would get them to tell me the minute details. I get the categories. That's important because it's important to be able to say, for example, uh, people who are interested in water sports are very ashamed often. So it's important to give the person the experience of saying, I'm turned on by water sports and not being greeted by somebody going, ew, being greeted by somebody saying, okay, lots of people are interested in that and normalizing. I don't need to know how you like it and from whom. So I know when somebody doesn't want help because all they're interested in is telling me every little bit of how they like it. And also they're often masturbating while they're doing it. And you can hear that. You can hear it in the voice or sometimes one fool signed up for a video session with me. And his problem was they couldn't stop masturbating. And now you may think, why did I accept that? Well, there are people who masturbate a lot and that is a real problem. So, you know, I'm, I'm starting to interview him and he's like, I can't stop. I'm doing it all the time. How would you work with me? 
And I said, well, the first thing is you can't masturbate in front of me. So even if we only had a session that was one minute long, because that was the longest you could go, that's how we would start. And I could see we're on video. And I saw that, you know, he had started to, he was masturbating. And I said, and you have five seconds to stop masturbating before I hang up. And he's like, well, how do you know? And I said, you're on video. I can see you, you know? And so at that point I was like, yeah, I'm not doing this because you don't, you're not here for help. And I just hung up. So you can tell by the way they talk, you can tell by what they focus on, that what they're there for is to get their jollies. That's what they want. And you're part of their fantasy, as opposed to, I'm uncomfortable with my fantasy. I'm going to go see a sex therapist or a sex coach in order to talk about what I'm uncomfortable with so that I can become comfortable. Big difference. Absolutely. And I experienced it being a, a form of violence, right? Like I feel it is. like it's aggressive, right? It's, it doesn't make a difference if you're sending me a dick pic or slapping me. It's the same thing, right? To me, rape is not a sexual crime. It's not, well, it is a sexual crime because it is sex, but it's not, rape is not about sex. Rape is about power and anger. So rape is a very violent and aggressive crime. And we make a mistake when we think it's about sex. It's the same thing with dick pics and indecent exposure and all of that. None of that is about sex. It's all about the violence and the power. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I know we started talking about exhibitionism as a form of like fun, but it's important to know all the spectrum and thinking it through and see where do I want to be? What are the risks and what do I want to get out of it? And having this helpful conversation with your partner about it and considering all aspects of the risk and what would that entail? Well, and it also helps you if somebody that you don't know terribly well is suggesting this new interesting thing to gauge whether what they want is exhibitionism and that thrill with you or whether what they want is more about kind of shoving your face in something and controlling you and aggression. And so you can gauge it based on the way they talk about it. And then go, well, actually, that's not my cup of tea because you want, you want to only want to do that. Also, if you say yes, and then they won't do it anymore. Sometimes if somebody sends you a dick pic and you like get all excited about it, they don't want to send you one anymore. <laughs> sometimes that doesn't work, which is why I don't advise that very often. But sometimes that's it, right? And so, so you know, sometimes you'll have somebody inviting you to do something for the wrong reasons. And you need to be able to assess, is this something I can really get behind? And also pay, paying attention to what you think, like, when they start talking about it, does this turn me on? Am I excited by the idea of, how, of going to a swing club or you know, going to a party and having sex at the party and knowing that other people are watching me and they're enjoying me too? Does that excite me or not? And sometimes you something, some idea, whether it's like having sex in front of the window or going to a sex party might seem interesting. You might be excited about and while you're doing it, you find that it's not your cup of tea or make you anxious or, or like it just makes you uneasy and you can change your mind. And that, that's so important because that's true of any fantasy. There are some things that actually will turn out to be better in fantasy than they are in reality. And it's not predictable what that will be. And so it's always important that people don't get so stuck on a fantasy that they're desperate to en en enact it, then they enact it and they've ruined one of their favorite mental excitements because it's perfectly fine to go, actually, the logistics of that in reality are not going to work. I don't think it's going to be as much fun as I thought. So let's say exhibitionism is a fantasy of yours and the, and the fantasy is about, you know, being at the local pool and, you know, almost getting caught. That may be great in your head. Have fun, role play it 
enjoy. Not so much fun in reality, right? And so don't don't feel like you absolutely have to physically enact it in order to enjoy the thrill. Absolutely. And again, there are fantasies that I time I tell people to talk about it, that they have no intention or it's not even possible to do it. The fact of kind of like having that experience and shared kind of conversation with partners sometimes can be exciting on its own. Yes, absolutely. And I think often people think the goal is always to do, right? And so they get all uptight because the goal is always to do, to act out. But it doesn't have to be. I mean, we can spice our sex lives out without ever leaving the bedroom with our partners, just by being Shahrazad and telling a thousand and one stories. I love that. Kind of like it's more about showing your erotic self and vulnerable self to your partner and bringing creativity to the moment. Like, because even when you're doing something that you're not into, you're just so guarded. Might not, you might not enjoy it. Your partner might not be into it versus like talking about fantasy that you're really immersed in and excited about that can do the magic. Yeah. And if you're, if you, if you're somebody who finds that difficult, you can start by looking at erotica and finding good erotica and, and either have your partner read it or my favorite read to your partner. I love it. I love read to your partner. That's so hot to actually pick a story you like and then read it. So you don't have, you know, if you're worried, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm not creative enough or, oh my God, even though I have this really detailed fantasy, when I start to talk about it, I'm just going to feel so exposed. Start with somebody else's words and build up to your words. I love that. What are some of the erotica that you recommend? What are some of the classics that your clients might be interested in? Okay, so the best erotica series, the best blah erotica, like there's the best lesbian erotica, there's the best gay erotica, there's the best BDSM erotica. Those series of short stories are traditionally really good. They're real authors who write for a living and write erotica for a living. So you won't cringe at the words that they're using and, and you, so you won't be pulled out of it. If you like kink fetish and BDSM, Cecilia Tan writes the most amazing erotica. She is known for writing sci-fi and fantasy erotica. One of my favorites of hers is telepaths don't need safe words. Oh, I love that. I haven't read that one. It's phenomenal. But she also is like, she's written magician series and she's written, she's great. She's just brilliant. I've never read something of hers I didn't like. If you're into like BDSM, like dominant submissive relationships, master slave kind of things, Laura Antonou's Marketplace series is fantastic. Midori writes amazing erotica. So those are the people that I recommend first most often. And then the best erotica series and any anything from Circlet Press. Circlet Press gathers really good authors for various short story collections. So they've got things like Vampire erotica, a book of vampire erotica, a book of werewolf erotica, a book of fairy erotica or, and you know, so it, it's fun. It's, it's, there's a lot of fun to that and gives you the opportunity to explore a wide variety of things. And I would encourage people, even if they're not sure if something is your thing, sometimes it's fun when an author is good enough. You'll be turned on by something you think you shouldn't be turned on by. And that can be a lot of fun too. So if you want something really challenging, James Williams wrote a book called But I Know What You Like, which is seriously challenging. There's stuff in there that is like, oh no, I shouldn't be turned on by this, but I am. Marco Vassi also is somebody that's challenging in that way. And it's if you don't like it, you know, put it down, move to the next one. Don't worry about it. It's not 
this is about exploring. This is about exploring as far and as wide as you can. Absolutely. You know, what I found in my own journey is that things that maybe I was interested 10 years ago, it doesn't appeal to me right now. It doesn't do anything. So our taste is completely normal to evolve and change. And as you said, that if something is not your taste, then you can move on to something else. And one of the things that I found that's really interesting is so there are a lot of women who are into gay male erotica. They like gay male pornography and they like gay male erotica. And people are like, why? Why do they feel that way? We don't know. They just like it. They're never going to enact it. So we know this is all fantasy. So don't worry about that. If you're somebody who finds yourself like wanting a piece of erotica or being interested in a piece of erotica that's so far outside anything you would ever do, don't worry about it. It's fun. It's just, it's using your imagination just like you would when you were a child and you were trying on different roles and things. This is adult play. That's what this is. I love that. I, I can talk to you for hours. <laughs> I love all of these like breadth and depth of the information you have every, about everything related to sexual health. So if our listeners want to learn more about you, about the content that you do, and you said like you have a speaking engagements, where can they find you? So the easiest way to find me is drlauriebethbisbee.com. It's got loads of stuff on the website. There's an event calendar. There's a really long FAQ. There's self-guided courses. There's how you can work with me individually. So that's the easiest way because there's all sorts of stuff on there. Lots and lots of information. I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter, threads, and Instagram. I'm at Dr. Bisbee. On TikTok, I'm at Lori Beth UK. On Facebook, I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, but I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. I must say, I don't like Facebook very much. I have started a private members club that's being going to be hosted on my website where for a monthly fee, you get access to all my content, but also specific just to the group. You have the opportunity to interact with other members of the group and we have conversations about whatever it is you want to talk about. And then once a month, I do a live and the topics vary and sometimes I have special guests and it is probably the most cost-effective way to get actual personal access to me. So that's a way of doing it. If you're interested in that, you can drop me a DM or drop me an email from the contact form on my website or also just get on my mailing list and you'll know when we are up and running. You'll get the sign-up forms and things like that. At the moment, I'm only touring the UK, although I actually am doing something in the US at the end of August. Oh, um, fun. Are you coming to LA? No, not this trip. But I often do. I'm oh, great. Before the pandemic, I was in LA three times a year. Oh, nice. Um, so I'm hoping to build back up to that. This this time I'm on the East Coast and I'm going to be in Virginia at Master Slave Conference. And so that's where I'll be speaking. But I'll be doing more in the U.S. hopefully 2024. I've already got some stuff planned. I just haven't put it up on the website yet because everybody has to dot their I's and cross their T's. And I am actually willing to travel places if people want to organize a talk. If people band together and organize a, a number of people, organize talks within an area, like if there's like three areas in California, then it's worth my while to come to California and it makes it easier to get me there. And so if there's something you really want to know about, that's one way of doing it. Also, the A to Z of Sex has been running since 2016. And you can find it wherever good podcasts are found. We're continuing to go. There's something for everyone on there. Fun, fun. I can't wait to check it out. Thank you so much for coming in this show. Hopefully I'll see you in person in California. I'll come see one of your talks in England. So thank you so much for doing this. This was definitely a wonderful conversation. My pleasure.
right, everyone, as we wind down today's chat on sex in public, let's recap three essential takeaways to keep in mind if you ever tempted to venture outside the bedroom. Number one is consent is key. Always ensure that all the potential onlookers are consensual. Avoid locations where our children's, minors, other people are around. Second thing that you want to keep in mind is know the law. Remember, many places have strict laws against public decency. And there are places that are definitely more lenient. Make sure you're doing your homework ahead of time to avoid any unpleasant surprises. And lastly, stay safe. Be discreet, choose locations wisely, and always prioritize your safety and the safety of your partner or partners. If you have fun stories about sex in public, I would love to hear them. Make sure you are sending it to me. They're emailing me at drmoali at oasis2care.com or DM me the stories. And I would be happy to read them in the podcast, of course, anonymously. Before we sign off, a big shout out to our amazing sponsor, Sexual Health Alliance. For those in sexuality field, you know how challenging it can be to meet the requirement to be a sex therapist. In the United States and Canada, ASAC is a main organization that do the certification. And if you're not part of a program that structured, give you the right kind of training, it might take you years to complete it. But here's the good news. Sexual Health Alliance is here to simplify the process with you. They've designed their programs to streamline your path to certification, making it accessible, comprehensive, and truly enlightening. So if you're eager to deepen your expertise and stand out in the field, do check out sexualhealthalliance.com. And of course, you'll find the link in our show notes. Their classes are so great. Although I'm ASAC certified, I continue to attend the classes to keep my knowledge up to date. And genuinely, they hire one of the, some of the best experts in the field. So definitely check them out. That's it for today. Keep exploring, stay curious, and always prioritize pleasure and consent. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.